First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. We started our teaching series through the book of Joshua called Faith That Wins uh, just last week, and I'm excited uh, today to be able to continue uh, that series. And so if you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, you turn to Joshua 2, and as you are turning there, you know, I'm not sure how you feel uh, about surprises. Uh, I know uh, some people like surprises, uh, some people maybe not so much. Uh, I know for, for me, I, I love surprises and, and I love even more uh, to give surprises. And uh, I remember one time Megan and I had just been married a couple of years. We were living up in North Carolina in, in, in uh, seminary housing there. Her birthday was coming up. And so I tried to organize a, a surprise birthday party for her. She had never had uh, one of those before. And so I uh, got all of her friends and kind of planned the night and uh, and, and, you know, it's kind of one of those things. You're always just hoping nobody will, you know, uh, let her in on that, on that surprise. But we got all the way to the night of it, and, and, and thankfully we came in uh, to that party, and, and everybody yelled surprise. I could tell just by the look of her face that, that she did not know, and, and was, it was an awesome thing. And, and she kind of thought, you know, that, uh, that was, uh, the, you know, the surprise was over. Uh, but I had uh, another little thing that I had been working on. And so her mom and I had been conspiring together and uh, worked out a way to fly her from Florida up to North Carolina for the party as well. And she was kind of hiding out in one of the upstairs uh, bedrooms. And so kind of after that initial surprise, and we were just kind of standing there in the living room talking, Megan looks up and she sees her mom coming down, you know, the stairs and she screams out mom. And, and uh, you know, it was awesome for her to see her. It had been a while since we had been home or she had been able to see her parents. And so it was kind of like a, like a double surprise party, right? You had the, the initial surprise of the party itself and, and then the surprise of, of getting to see her mom as well. You know, it's been a, a few years since that happened, but I thought about that party again this week because the story that uh, was just read for us in Joshua chapter two uh, is a little bit like that. Uh, th- this is a surprising story. And and it's a surprising story, I think, in a number of ways, but it is at least a double surprise. There are at least two clear surprises in this story that I want us to see today. And and as we look at these surprises in this story, friend, I'm I'm praying that perhaps today God will surprise you. Uh, That God will surprise you with his grace, that God will surprise you with his love. That God will surprise you with maybe what he wants to do in your life and, and in my life through his word. First off, I want us to see today that this is a story of surprising faith. Surprising faith. And I want us to remember where we are in the story of God's people. By the time we come to Joshua chapter 2, God has rescued his people from their bondage in Egypt. He's brought them across the Red Sea on dry ground. He's given them the law through his servant Moses. But if you recall, they did not have the faith to enter into the promised land. And so they had wandered for 40 years in the desert. But by this time, that 40 years of wandering is now over. Moses, that great servant of God, is now gone. And in Joshua chapter 1, God turns to Moses' successor, Joshua. 
And as we saw last week, he says to Joshua, be strong and courageous. I'm going to be with you wherever you go. And he, he tells Joshua, now is the time to, to cross over the Jordan River, to enter into the land that I promised to give to my people. And so Joshua was preparing to do just that. As we come to chapter two of this book, Joshua decides to send a couple of spies into the land so he can learn more about the land that he's about to enter and specifically more about the city of Jericho because he knows that that would be the first major city that he would have to do battle against. You know, it hit me this week that Joshua only sent in two spies. And I thought that was kind of funny because if you remember 40 years before this, uh, Moses had sent in 12 spies, but only two of them, one of which was Joshua himself, had come back with a positive report. The other 10 spies had come back saying the people in the land are too big and too strong and we really shouldn't go in. And uh, I don't know, maybe this time Joshua just thought, you know, let's forget about sending in the other 10 and let's just send in two to start with and maybe things will turn out better that way. In verse one, it says the two spies leave the Israelite camp at Acacia Grove, which was about seven miles uh, to uh, the east of the Jordan River. And uh, they go and they cross the Jordan. They come to the city of Jericho and they sneak in and come to the house of a harlot named Rahab. Now, despite what some others have said, there is nothing whatsoever in this text to suggest that anything inappropriate took place here. We, we need to remember that these men were trying to avoid uh, being detected. And so they went to a place in the city where, unfortunately, many travelers would have gone, a, a place where they hoped to go unnoticed and a place from which they hoped to learn about the city. Of course, we know because we've read the rest of this story that there is another reason why in God's providence they come to this particular woman's house. And that is because despite whatever we might think of her occupation, God had been at work in her heart and he was going to save her in more ways than one. Now, when it comes to the two spies, despite their best efforts to avoid detection, verse 2 tells us that the king of this city-state of Jericho uh, finds out pretty much right away that the two spies are in his city and that they are at Rahab's house. So uh, I don't know, maybe these guys weren't the best spies in the world. Uh, maybe they were more like Johnny English than Jason Bourne. I, I, I'm not sure, but, but in any event, they didn't even make it through a night before their cover was blown. And so the king sends messengers to Rahab's house to capture them. And at the end of verse three, this is what they say to Rahab, bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. Now the narrator tells us in verse four that Rahab had already hidden the spies. If you look down at verse six, he gives us a little bit more detail about that. He tells us that she had hidden them on her roof under stalks of flax, which were used to make linen garments. These stalks would have been washed and, and then dyed and then left on uh, the rooftop uh, in order to dry in the sun. And they would have made a perfect hiding place for these two men. 
And so she had already hidden them by the time the messengers arrived. But in verses four and five, the narrator lets us kind of listen in on on what Rahab says to these king's messengers that are standing at her doorway. Look at verse four. She said to them, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly for you may overtake them. In other words, she says, yes, these two guys did come here. I didn't know where they were from. Uh, They've already left, but hurry up and you might catch them. Now, obviously what Rahab says to the messengers of the king here uh, was a lie. And there's been a lot of conversation and a lot of debate uh, among Bible scholars about that. And in some ways, this story is similar to the story of the Hebrew midwives that we read about in Exodus chapter 1 who also lied to Pharaoh in order to save the lives of the Hebrew baby boys that he had wanted them to kill. And some folks have argued that in cases like these where there is a higher priority at work, the priority of saving innocent life from those who mean them harm as the Hebrew midwives did and as Rahab does here, that in those cases, folks will argue that it's okay to tell a lie. I certainly understand that line of of thinking. I'm reluctant to fully go there myself because the Bible really never explicitly excuses or commends Rahab for lying. Uh, The fact is that the Bible doesn't speak about her lying either good or bad. It is not the main focus of the story. What the Bible does commend, including in two passages in the New Testament that we're going to read in just a moment, is the faith that Rahab displayed in receiving and in protecting the spies. And I think that's where our focus should be as well. I agree with what one person said. It's, it's tragic when people get so hung up on Rahab's lie that they never really listen to the truth that she speaks immediately after that. Because that really is the main focus of the story. It's right there in the middle of the chapter in verses 8 through 14. We read about a conversation that Rahab had with the two spies before the king's messengers had come to the door. And really this is a surprising statement of faith from the most unlikely of sources. From the lips of a Gentile prostitute living in a pagan city that was about to be destroyed, we read this incredible account of faith in the one true God. And it gives us a picture of what saving faith looks like. Saving faith, not just back then, but in our day as well. First off, Rahab teaches us that saving faith is a faith that hears. You know, that's where faith always has to begin. It has to begin with hearing the word of God. Look at what Rahab said beginning in verse 9 to the two men. She said, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly 
destroyed. And when she says, I know that the Lord has given you the land, if you think about it, she's displaying in that one sentence more faith than 10 of the 12 Israelite spies had shown 40 years earlier. They did not believe in God's promise that he had given them the land, but Rahab does. And she tells them that all the people living in Jericho are petrified because of them. The word that she uses is a word that was used for the melting of wax. She says, our hearts have melted in fear. And then she says, why? In verse 10. And she starts to recount the the history of God's people and the mighty works that the mighty God had done for them. She says, we've heard about how he dried up the Red Sea and let you walk across on the dry ground. That had happened 40 years earlier, but they were still talking about it. She had heard about it, even inside this walled city of Jericho. She had heard about events that took place more recently, these battles and victories against King Sihon and King Og and You know, I'm sure there's lots of other things that Rahab was unaware of. Presumably, she did not have the law. She did not know about the covenants that God had made. She didn't know about any of that because she had not heard of that, but she had heard enough, hadn't she? She had heard enough about the word of God and the works of God for her to have faith in God. And that's how it still works today. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so friend, if you're here and you're wrestling with with faith, you're wrestling with where you stand with God, the answer is not for you to try to somehow conjure up feelings of faith. The, The answer is not to try to pursue some experience where you can point back to an experience and say, well, because of that, I believe. No, the answer is the same as it was for Rahab. It's, it's to hear the word of God. It's to read it and and to study it and to hear about the mighty things that God has done for his people. In particular, to hear about what he did through his son, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins on the cross and paid for them in full and rose again on the third day. Hear that word from God and you and I will be changed as we hear the word of God. Just as Rahab did, because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Rahab teaches us that saving faith is a faith that hears. But her story also teaches us that saving faith is a faith that abandons and aligns. It abandons and aligns. Look look at what Rahab said next in verse 11. She said, as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted, neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in heaven above, And on earth beneath. Listen to those final words. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And that statement is just amazing to me. This woman, Rahab, lived in the middle of a Canaanite society where they worshiped many gods, where each people group had their own God that they worshiped. And yet clearly she no longer views the God of Israel as some tribal deity that was their God, but was not her own God. To use a modern day language, her position was not, uh, you know, well, you believe whatever you believe and I'll believe whatever I believe and maybe your belief works for you and my belief works for me. 
And that's not what Rahab said. She had come to a place where she understood that the God of Israel was the only God that there was. And she now believes he is the God of heaven and earth who made it all, who rules over it all. This this sentence is really her confession, her statement of faith. And because of her faith in God, what she is really doing here by harboring these enemy spies at the risk of her own life is she is abandoning her people. She's abandoning her past and her culture and the worship of their idols. And she is aligning herself with Israel and with Israel's God. And you can see that especially in verses 12 and 13 when she pleads with these servants of the Lord to spare her life. Look at verse 12. Now, therefore, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show me kindness and to my father's house and give me a true token and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. She's, she's saying to them, listen, I've, I've shown you kindness and what I've done for you. And I'm asking you, I'm begging you to show kindness to me, to, to show kindness to my extended family and to save us on the day of the battle. Now, listen, just her saying that is another evidence of her faith in God. Because she's speaking these words inside the walls of Jericho that most believe had a system of of a double wall all the way around the city. It was considered to be uh, one of the most uh, impenetrable cities in the ancient world. And yet she's so confident in the God of Israel. She's so confident that he's the God of heaven and earth. She's so confident that he will keep his promise to give this land to his people that she knows that the battle is over with before it's already started. And because she knows how this battle is going to end, she's praying and asking these men to spare her life and that of her family. You know, if anyone today, anyone in this room, anyone listening right now to this service would be saved today, the same thing is going to have to happen in your life. Like Rahab did, we have to believe that God is real, that he's the God of heaven and earth. We have to believe that his word is true. That his word is true when it says that we have all sinned against him and that we live in a world that is one day going to be judged. In order to turn to him and to be saved, we have to be willing to abandon some things. We have to be willing to abandon our sin and turn our back on our world and our culture and walk away from it just as Lot did when he walked away from the city of Sodom. And we have to be willing to align ourselves with the Lord, to to say to the Lord, you have said to me in your word that those who receive your son can be adopted as your sons and as your daughters. And Lord, that's what I want. And I'm asking you to forgive me and to save me and to take me into your people, to make me one of your children. I am yours, Lord. I belong to you and I want to live for you from this day forward. That's, That's what it means to repent and to believe. It's what it means to abandon and align ourselves with the Lord and with his people. You know, the final truth I I think we can learn about saving faith from Rahab is is just simply that saving faith works. Again, Rahab shows up a couple of times in the New Testament. As I mentioned earlier, one of them is in James chapter 2. 
And this is what James wrote to us about Rahab. He said, likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Now, when you look at the Bible as a whole, it is crystal clear that we are not saved by our good works. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. But the Bible is also clear, and this is what James chapter 2 is teaching, that the kind of faith that saves is a faith that works. That the kind of faith that saves will change our lifestyle. If we say we have faith in God, but it doesn't change anything about the way that we live, then we probably do not have the faith in God that we think we do. Rahab's faith changed the way she lived. She didn't didn't just say she believed. Because she believed, she aligned herself with the people of God, and she was really committing what her people would have considered to be treason against her own people by helping these men escape. Her faith changed the things that she did. Friend, does your faith change the things that you do? Saving faith will and does. Faith without works is a dead faith, but a real faith, a vital saving faith, is a faith that changes everything. And you know, it's because Rahab had a faith like that, because her story really is a story of surprising faith, that she's one of only two women that are mentioned in the hall of fame of faith that we read in Hebrews chapter 11. Rahab is held up for us in the New Testament as a model of the kind of faith that God wants us to have. Here's what it says, Hebrews 11, by faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. You know, the rest of Rahab's story in Joshua 2 is given to us pretty simply. The two spies hear her request to be spared in the coming attack on the city, and they grant it. In fact, in verse 14, they pledge to protect her life even with their own lives. In verse 15, we find out how it was that uh, Rahab was able to help these two men escape the city even after the gates of the city had been closed shut. And that's because her home was built on the city wall or more likely built between the inner and outer wall of the city with a window on that outer wall. And she was able to lower them by means of a rope down to the ground beneath. In verses 17 through 20, we read about a few conditions that the men gave Rahab about the promise that they had made to protect her life. And they tell her, we can only guarantee the lives of, of your family members who come inside of your house on the day of the battle. And we can only do that if if you will promise not to share our business and that we've been here and where we're going. And then they tell her to tie a scarlet cord or a rope, the same one that they were about to use to climb down and to tie that scarlet cord in her window so that they would know which home was hers on the day of the battle. Rahab agrees to those terms of that covenant, that agreement between them, and she advises the men not to go straight back to the Jordan River, but instead to go the other direction to the mountains and to wait for a few days there until the king's messengers gave up looking for them. And the men took her advice, and they hid in the mountains until the coast was clear, 
And when it was, they hightailed it back to the Jordan River and made it across and back safely to the Israelite camp. And then they gave their leader the encouraging report that we read in verse 24. Truly the Lord has delivered all the land into our hands. For indeed, all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. Now, we've seen that this story of Rahab is a story of surprising faith. But again, this uh, story doesn't just have one surprise in it. It has at least two. Because not only is this the story of Rahab's surprising faith, even more than that, this is the story of God's surprising grace. You know, the main character in every story in the Bible is the Lord God himself. And when we read his word, we always need to be reading and looking for what it teaches us about our great God. And you cannot read this story of Rahab without being struck with how amazing and how beautiful and how surprising the grace of God truly is. You know, a couple things hit me this week as I was thinking about this story. And, and first off, you remember at the beginning of the story when, when Joshua sends those two spies to spy out the land, especially Jericho, presumably what he wanted was for them to bring him back some intel that he could use to formulate the battle plan of how he was going to defeat the city of Jericho. But if you've read the rest of the book of Joshua, you know that Joshua isn't going to end up needing to create a battle plan of his own. Because God gives him the battle plan for the battle of Jericho. And we'll see this in a few weeks. It's a pretty interesting battle plan. It's one that involves a lot more walking around and playing trumpets than it does actual fighting. And so Joshua isn't going to need any information that these spies are going to bring back. Now, he doesn't know that at this point, but of course God does. And so why in God's providence do these two men go to Jericho in the first place, they, they didn't go there in order to learn something about the city. In God's providence, they went there because there was someone in the city that God was going to save. And God was already at work in this woman's heart and bringing her to saving faith in him. And now he's sending these two men to her, to her home, out of all the houses in Jericho, to save her life and that of her family. That's why they needed to go there. And it, it reminds me of what we read in John chapter 4 when it says that Jesus needed to go through Samaria. Why did he need to go through Samaria? Well, we find out as we keep reading the story. He needed to go there because he had an appointment with one particular woman that was sitting at one particular well. That's why these two men needed to go to Jericho because God had an appointment with a woman there named Rahab that he was going to save. And it's so interesting to me because when you think about the book of Joshua, what you think about are all the battles and all the conquests and the destruction of cities. And, and we're going to come back to that later in this series and, and address that head on because there's some thorny issues in, in this book that will challenge us and will cause us to wrestle with what we read here in the Word of God. But church, don't miss that the first story in this book is not a story about conquest or destruction. It's a story about God's grace. It's a story about God's heart to save one woman and bring her into the family of God. And if we're honest, it's a surprising woman that he chose to save. A Canaanite, a pagan, a prostitute. 
And yet God chooses to save her, to teach us something very important, I believe, that there is no one that his surprising grace cannot and will not save. I think it's the same reason why Jesus stopped under the sycamore that, tree, that day that Zacchaeus was sitting in. And he called him to come down, and that day he saved Zacchaeus, a hated and despised little tax collector. I think it's why God met the man we knew as Saul on the road to Damascus and turned his life around and turned him into Paul. Friend, it's, it's why God and his surprising grace can save someone like me and someone like you. It doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter how ugly our sin may be. You know, the ugliness of our sin is no match for the beauty of his grace. I agree with what one pastor said. You know, you might think, well, okay, you know, God wanted to save Rahab, but, you know, surely he's going to keep her at kind of arm's length, you know, as a, as a second-class citizen in the kingdom because of the lifestyle that she had lived and, and, and who she was. But that's not what God does at all, is it? When we come to Joshua chapter 6, we find out that on the day of the battle of Jericho, Joshua sends in the same two guys that went to her house. He sends them back to her house to save her and to save her family. And they keep that promise to Rahab's family. And in Joshua 6, it says that Rahab actually becomes a part of the people of God, that she dwells among the people of God. And not only that, but in, in, in the passage of time, she marries an Israelite man and they have a child. And then you fast forward to the New Testament, to the first chapter of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, to the genealogy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you want to take a guess whose name shows up there? Matthew 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then we skip down to verse 5. Salmon begot Boaz by who? By Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, Jesse David, and so on, all the way to the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of God. Is that not crazy to anyone else here today? There's only four women that are mentioned in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1. And one of them is Rahab the harlot from Jericho. A former prostitute is an ancestress of our Savior. This is the surprising grace of God, church. But the truth is, none of us, no matter who we are, needed God's grace any less than Rahab did. Our sin is great, but his grace is greater still. And because of Jesus, the great, 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 great grandson of Rahab, sinners like Rahab and sinners like you and sinners like me can be accepted into the family of God. You know, when I think about the story of Rahab, the, the image that, that comes into my mind, and maybe it's the image that comes into your mind, it is the image of that token of the promise that she asked the spies to give her, which ended up being that scarlet cord or scarlet rope that they told her to tie in the window. And the spy said, you need to tie this cord in the window so that on the day of battle, we can know what house is yours. And, and so she did that. And if you think about it, that scarlet cord was hanging out her window and draping down the walls of the city of Jericho from that day on. 
It was hanging on that wall all the time it took until the Israelites crossed the Jordan River, as we're going to read about in the next couple of chapters. All the time until they made it to the city of Jericho, it was hanging out her window and down the wall all seven of those days that they were marching around the city one time a day. Remember that? And every time as they marched around the walls of the city of Jericho, they could look up and at one particular place, they could see a scarlet rope coming down the window and hanging down the wall. And at least Joshua and these two spies, every time they saw that scarlet rope, they knew, well, that's Rahab's house and everyone inside of her house is going to be saved. You know, there's a tradition that goes back to the church fathers, to Clement of Rome and others that that teaches that there's a scarlet cord that runs all the way through the Bible. A scarlet cord that starts with the sacrifice of Abel in Genesis and it runs all the way to the cross. And, And they taught that the scarlet cord of Rahab signified the blood of Christ that ultimately saved her and us. Now, perhaps without biblical warrant to do so, we cannot say with certainty that the cord was intended by the writer to signify Christ's blood. But for us who live on this side of the cross, for us who hold the entire Bible in our hands, for us who have read Luke 24, where Jesus said that all things in the Bible shout his name. I don't know that there's any way that we can read this story of Rahab and her scarlet cord without at least being reminded of the gospel truth. Her her scarlet cord first reminds us of of a story that happened before this in the Bible that happened 40 years earlier on the night of the Passover. And in the same way that that scarlet cord marked Rahab's house as a house that would be saved at the time of destruction, God told his people to take a lamb and to take the blood of the lamb and to mark the doorframe of their house with the blood of the lamb. And when the angel of death came through Egypt that night and took the life of every firstborn son, when they saw the blood of the lamb, that red crimson blood on the door, the angel of death would pass over their home and they would be spared. And then we come to Rahab and we trace that scarlet cord all the way to the foot of the cross. Because it was there at the cross that our Savior died for our sin and from his head and from his side and from his hands and from his feet, we can see precious blood running down the cross like a scarlet crimson cord. And the Bible says that only those who are covered in his blood Only those whose lives are marked by his blood are saved. And friend, if that is you today, then let's praise God for his surprising grace in our lives. It reached not only a sinner like Rahab, but it reached so far to save a sinner like me and a sinner like you. But you know, maybe there's someone here today, maybe someone listening online today or listening on the radio right now and And perhaps you're more like the other people who were living in Jericho than like Rahab. Maybe today you have not yet trusted in Jesus, but up until now, you have been feeling secure within the walled city of your life. You have thought that there was no danger, that no harm would ever befall you. But friend, the Bible says that we are all sinners, every one of us. And the Bible says a day of judgment is coming for all of us, that the Lord will come with the blast of a trumpet. And you and I will meet him face to face. And deep down, you know that to be true. 
Deep down, you know there will be a day when you will meet the God who made you, and deep down, you also know that you are not ready for that meeting. Friend, if that is you, why not today, why not today do what Rahab did? To hear the word of God, to turn from your past and turn from your sin and align yourself with the Lord. Why why not today put your faith in the Savior who died for you because he loves you and rose again on the third day? Why not tie that scarlet cord in the window of your heart and grab hold by faith to the one who gave himself for you. And he stands ready right now to save you with amazing, surprising grace.